0: Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show.
1: If we'd stopped the clock at, say, 1960, then no one
0: would have heard of Milton Friedman's Hall. Nicholas Wapshot on the battle over the free market. Today's episode is about two of the true giants in the history of economics. And it's also about the rivalry and the debate that they had with each other, a rivalry that not only was fierce, but which also lasted pretty much their entire adult lives. And both men, by the way, lived into their 90s, so it lasted a long time. Their names were Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman, and mainly what they debated was how much of a role the government should have in steering the economy versus how much should be left to the free market. Paul Samuelson believed the government did have a substantial role to play. Milton Friedman, he was the free market guy. And from the 1960s to the early 80s, they actually wrote alternating columns in Newsweek magazine. So like you could read Friedman one week and Samuelson the next week. And I know nobody really reads magazines anymore because of the internet or whatever. But back then, this was a big deal because news magazines themselves were a big deal. They reached millions of readers. And today's guest, Nicholas Wapshot, has read all of those columns and a lot of other stuff, too, for a new book that he wrote and which just got published and which is called, simply enough, Samuelson Friedman. The book is kind of an intellectual sequel to Nicholas's earlier book, which was called Keynes-Hayek, and which was about basically the same argument over the government's role in the economy, but as it was debated by two earlier economists, John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek, who were on the scene and debating this issue back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. So this argument goes back a very long time, and it's obviously one that still matters now, and I guess will probably continue to matter so long as there are governments and economies. And what you'll hear in my chat with Nicholas is how both Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman would spend their lives, really, their careers, grappling with the legacy of their predecessors, just like economists today are influenced by the legacy of Samuelson and Friedman themselves. So today's episode is really about how this debate has evolved over time, and it's about how the big economic thinkers of the past can exert a long-lasting influence, even maybe without us realizing. Here it is. Nicholas Wapshot, welcome to The New Bazaar.
1: Cardiff, it's a great joy to be with you again to talk again about these uh, wonderful people.
0: You've got a new book out called Samuelson-Friedman, which is, as you've described it, a sequel of sorts to your earlier book, Keynes-Hayek. But essentially, it's about these two giants of economics. And in this case, they're sort of almost lifelong rivalry, which differentiates it from what happened between Friedrich Hayek and John Maynard Keynes. Here, Milton Friedman versus Paul Samuelson, it lasted for decades.
1: It did. It went off until then. In their 90s. Yeah. (laughs) And even the death of one of them didn't stop the other one from kicking the corpse. I mean, there was no end to the dislike, actually, when it came to intellectual dislike of each other.
0: It's interesting because they also had a certain affection for each other as well. And sometimes they would describe each other as friends. They complimented each other's intelligence quite a bit. They saw each other as worthy rivals. And so it wasn't just a sort of bitter dislike, although sometimes that seemed to come out in aggressive and passive aggressive ways, they actually did seem to have a certain amount of intellectual and professional respect for each other. Is that right?
1: Yes, they liked each other. There's no doubt about it. They liked each other at the same time as they hated each other. Yeah. <laughs> they were frenemies in the end. Yeah. Rather like uh, in the end Keynes and Hayek used to eat in Cambridge every dinner time, you know, the two of them would sit on the top table at King's College and talk about antiquarian books. As long as they didn't talk about economics, they were just fine.
0: <laughs> it sounds exactly like economists. <laughs> <laughs> yes, They liked and hated each other. Fair yeah, enough. I don't
1: know why people call this a dismal trade. You know, I mean, economics is full of lively people. Yeah, so, really and they're is. at it with rapiers all the time and still are. <laughs> yeah, That profound gulf between one side and the other, however you want to describe them, exists today. And uh, it's, you, you know, I, I get to uh, blamed from either side. You know, how dare you bring up Hayek and put him on a plinth alongside Keynes? How dare you mention Keynes at all? <laughs> you know, it's all about Hayek. Anyway.
0: Well, let's go all the way back in time to the kind of early influences for both Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson. Because you established early on in the book that they actually had quite a lot of similarities. You know, they both came from Jewish émigré families from Central Europe. And they both had what I think were pretty formative experiences of the Great Depression and later of anti-Semitism in the academy, which at the time was really quite rife throughout the country. So let's go back in time to Paul Samuelson's early experiences. What should we know about how those experiences would later influence him? Both
1: men grew up poor, but Samuelson had a nose ahead of Friedman, I guess, inasmuch as his father was a pharmacist in, of all places, Indiana, I mean, there are not many Jews in Indiana, but he was a pharmacist. And he dealt, this is before healthcare became established at all. He was used by poor smokestack industry workers, many of whom came from Eastern Europe and had learned their trades in Eastern Europe. They spoke a sort of a Middle English combination. Uh, But they went there to the pharmacist instead of the doctor because they couldn't afford the doctor. So the pharmacist actually made some money, but he didn't make enough money to keep his child Paul Samuelson, Paul was farmed out, literally farmed out, to a farmer and his wife for a number of years.
0: To, like, foster parents, essentially. Yes.
1: But for why? Paul Samuelson, to the end of his dying days, never discovered exactly why. No one would ever mention why. It wasn't anything to do with him. It wasn't if he was a bad boy. He was quite the opposite. He was a, you know, book-learning, smart kid and likable. Uh, But his parents just, I think, couldn't afford it. They just couldn't afford the time. I think the mother and father were both working all the time to try to just make ends meet.
0: Yeah, and then they took him back. Then they uh, took advantage. back, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he, so he grew up, and then what ended up getting him to the University of Chicago as an undergrad, and what was his experience like? This was, I think, the early 1930s.
1: Even before that, this um, he was a very smart kid, and he w- won every scholarship going, and he used to... Pick winners for his schoolmaster who taught him economics.
0: Pick stock winners. Stock winners.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how precocious as a teenager, he was. As a teenager, think, yeah. yeah. The result was that two years ahead of time, at age 16, he went to the University of Chicago Economics Department. And he said, that's when my life began. It's a great revelation. It, I mean, this is education as a liberating force for people. And it's undoubtedly true. Poor, smart kids are helped Thanks. out just by education. That's the ladder of opportunity which gets them out.
0: Yeah, and you said that Samuelson had just a nose up on Friedman. So give us a sense of Milton Friedman's uh, early childhood and what got him to also the University of Chicago at about the same time, I think, that Paul Samuelson was there.
1: Yeah, though Paul Samuelson was two years younger and they joined at the same time. So there was, uh, <laughs> Samuelson already, already had a, you know... Was racing a, ahead, a, yeah. A, racing ahead. It wasn't quite a photo finish even at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Milton grew up very poor in Brooklyn, classic place for a young... To grow up, and uh, they eventually moved to New Jersey after the death of his father. So his mother worked. She sold sort of dry goods, she called it. I mean, we're talking about uh, groceries, really. How she did it, whether she did it door to door or it had premises, we're not quite sure. But uh, that's the sort of life that Milton grew up with, with no, not a spare cent around the house. So he had to work his way through everything. And he also started off in, you know, rather less elevated terms. Uh, he ended up going to Rutgers, whereas Samuelson ended up going to Harvard. So, you know, the world was divided, even among meritocrats. You're talking about Rutgers
0: for graduate school, yes. you mean, after yeah. the University of Chicago. No, I mean,
1: perfectly good school but it's not as world-renowned as Harvard is. Of course. So I see even the scholarship boys, you know, put into the sheep and the goats. So I think that Milton always felt slightly chippy. Certainly Rose Friedman felt slightly chippy about the fact that Paul Samuelson was comfortably well-off, which, of course, he really wasn't. He was relatively comfortable.
0: Rose Friedman, Milton Friedman's wife, you mean, who he met at the University of Chicago, I believe, and who always, I think even into her 90s, would talk about Samuelson and his privilege, right? Because Milton Friedman was waiting tables as I learned in your book, to pay his way through college. And Samuelson didn't have to do that.
1: That's right. And Samuelson, I mean, didn't have to defend himself because Rose never said it in front of him. But the, fact <laughs> was, but the fact was that Samuelson always had enough money because he always had scholarships to ride on. And he was indeed resting on the beach when Milton was selling things door-to-door, ties, you know, university ties and things like that, door-to-door. And he said, I always felt bad about, this is Samuelson, I always felt bad about taking a job belonging to someone else could do because they needed the money and I didn't need the money. Yet I'm now blamed for, you know, sort of loafing around like a rich kid with an inheritance. And I think that it was, you're absolutely right about Rose and Milton meeting. This is a world that is long gone. Can you imagine the University of Chicago when it has a new class of anything in those days used to actually apportion places in the class themselves and would put names down? And because they went alphabetically, Milton Friedman ended up
0: next door to Rose. To Rose Director, I believe, was her last yeah, name at the time, whose right? Brother yeah, brother
1: was Aaron Director, who was a very distinguished Chicago economist. Yes. So actually, Milton sort of married in. He married into the business. Samuelson didn't. But yeah. anyway, uh, Samuelson was already there.
0: So they were both at the University of Chicago as undergrads together. They would then go on to grad school. And let's talk about their personalities, because you also established this pretty early in the book. Milton Friedman. Pretty cocky guy, you know, headstrong, really kind of, um, really appreciated the usefulness of a simple message. You know, he knew that that would be persuasive. Also, like you said, a little chippy was the impression that I got from your book.
1: Uh, it's true. I think that the two of them, undoubtedly, Samuelson was the more sophisticated. You know, he was more erudite in many respects. He had a much broader waterfront, had a hinterland that Milton didn't have, a cultured one. And uh, both of them, because they were Jewish, they both enjoyed a very similar culture, which was very rich with the notion of culture and the importance of culture. But uh, Samuelson was, um, not, no doubt, because of his early success, I mean, he, he was, I think he was aware, you couldn't help being aware if you're 16 years old and you're surrounded by people aged 18, 19 in your class, that you are something rather special. And every piece of work that he did was greeted with joy by anyone who read it. Milton had to work his way through. Milton was just another student, really. They were both short, but Milton was even shorter than Paul Samuelson. I think that smallness might not have been an advantage for Milton. You know, he liked to prod the chest because he couldn't actually prod the nose of anybody else.
0: Here's something I found uh, surprising and that I absolutely did not know. And which I think will also surprise people who know a little bit about Milton Friedman's later career as like the uber free market guy. In the 1930s and 40s, Milton Friedman first took a job as a New Deal economist. In other words, he got a job as an economist evaluating New Deal programs as part of the New Deal. And then later wrote a paper or wrote something that I think was published about how raising taxes could be a useful way to slow inflation. And later on, I think he kind of disavowed all this stuff, but I was surprised that early in his career, he considered himself a Keynesian. You know, which I think was a shock to him, even to him later on. <laughs> you know, and I think certainly was a shock to me. I didn't know anything about this. He was a
1: new dealer, which I think is slightly different. I mean, okay, there is a difference between what Roosevelt was doing and what Keynes was recommending. As we know, Keynes and Roosevelt really didn't see eye to eye in many
0: respects. They explain that, though. Um, when you say he's a new dealer, he was a new dealer. Breedman was and not a Keynesian. But what, what's the distinction there?
1: Keynes had a, an interesting 1936 sort publication of uh, the general theory, which really transformed economics from being financial business micro-affair into being a a proper science. He took the structure of economics to bits and he put it back together. He said, now I know how this works. And so I also know the effect of one thing and another. Roosevelt was doing something else. He He was doing a lot of things which people ascribe to Keynesianism. But what he was doing was just, let's just try anything to see whether anything would work. If people aren't employed, just let's employ them doing something. And if we haven't got the money, let's borrow it anyway, because who cares, you know? So Keynes and he and Roosevelt took a very similar line on the world, but Roosevelt was really just interested in getting the job done now, whereas Keynes was interested in why it might make sense to do it in the way that he's suggesting.
0: Sure. And, and so Friedman at the time, I think, had different views from the ones that he would develop later on. What do we know about what Samuelson thought about the New Deal and Keynesian economics in the years after the general theory was published? What was the influence, the early influence of Keynes on Paul Samuelson?
1: He was convinced right from the very beginning that this was— That Keynes was right. Yeah. And I think there are very few people who could understand Keynes— Maybe nobody
0: could understand Samuelson this. could, right? I think Samuelson understood more <laughs> than
1: no more than anyone else could, which you know, <laughs> which was a lot. But Samuelson always used to boast to that he was the only person who'd read every single word of Milton Friedman, apart from Milton Friedman, right? You know, he actually did his homework always, and I think that the the imagination, the breadth of uh, scope of Keynes impressed itself upon Samuelson. Yeah, that you know, hey, I always thought that economics was real, but now now I've got a, a light, to, you know, to guide me. Uh, he is a genius in my own lifetime that I can you know, get to grips with. And that's it, One away. way, what he did for the rest of his time. He, every year he would produce a paper and he filled in another part of the jigsaw that was John Maynard Keynes and explained in mathematical terms why Keynes was right.
0: Yeah. There was something else uh, about Samuelson that, according to your book, I think he realized it later in life, but that he also shared with Keynes, which was the ability to change your mind – when, as Keynes, I think, maybe apocryphally said, I don't know if he actually said this, but when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Right. And Samuelson also would update his views quite frequently, you know, this was something that Friedman really struggled to do. I mean, once he had it in mind that he had a theory that he thought was right, it was really hard for him to change his mind. Samuelson was more like Keynes in the sense that he would write a paper and then say, 10 years later, say, yeah, I don't really care about that. That, That's not true. I changed my mind. You know, even about something that was published and something that he was proud of at the time, Samuelson was able to change his mind, which is a useful trait, I think, in, in an economist. But But in anyone, really. In in this,
1: I think, yes, they they did parallel Keynes and Hayek. I mean, Keynes was constantly revising and revising and revising. And he would just throw something away because it was last year's thought. You know, I I got over that. And here's my new thought. And including a tract on monetary reform, which is really the intellectual guide to Milton Friedman's monetarism.
0: Keynes' tract on monetary reform, which I think he published sometime in the 1920s, way before Keynes published The General Theory, he had published a tract on monetary reform and had— Abandon it, essentially. In the introduction
1: to Attract on Monetary Reform, when it's being published, said, I don't believe any of this anymore. (laughs) That's amazing. You you better read it anyway, because you might glean something out of it. I mean, so it was fascinating. So in
0: the time between Keynes finished writing Attract on Monetary Reform and when it got published, he changed his mind already. I'm I'm over this. That's great. (laughs) That's tremendous. But what
1: what intellectual confidence, hey, in, in a cutthroat world? of academia. We, you know, we know that academics don't you know, sit around having cups of tea all day. They're mostly stabbing each other in the back if they can sure. have a chance. And to be able to just sail through this you know, with everybody watching and just say, Meh, yeah, this seems plausible. And if you want to think that, that's fine. But I know it's not true anymore. You <laughs> <laughs> might be useful for my notes, you know.
0: You and I, in a previous conversation about Keynes, uh, we're talking about how Keynes must have had just an unbelievable confidence, even arrogance, to name the general theory the, the general, general theory. You know, well, like, like this is it. There is nothing else. This is the general theory. It's not one of the general theories.
1: Well, Samuelson picked up that um, notion, of course, when he wrote his economics textbook, which he called Economics, as if there was no option. It is. And it, by the way, it is. Every single person who's ever read economics in this country or any other country, if they haven't read Samuelson, they're not reading economics.
0: Talk about this textbook because this is a bigger deal than I think people nowadays think of as, oh, this is a textbook that we used in my college class or whatever. Actually, Samuelson's economic textbook, which he established, I believe, first in sometime in the 1940s and would revise it many times over the course of the rest of his life, was a landmark work. I mean, this was actually a huge deal in the profession and in the way people would learn economics, including big-time subsequent economists, a lot of them first learned about it from this textbook. So give us the background on the development of this textbook and, and why it matters. First of all,
1: so it was an accident that, um, that uh, <laughs> Paul Samuelson arrived on the wrong side of the Charles River. He arrived at MIT when it was an engineering college. and he, Instead of Harvard. Instead of Harvard, which is where he did his PhD thesis and where none of the supervisors could understand a word of what he was saying, but said, I guess he's right by the way he explains it. It seems, (laughs) what do you think? Because he was
0: too (laughs) smart for his advisors. That's great. Uh, Exactly.
1: But on the basis of that, he wasn't given what he might have expected, which is a tenure, a lectureship. Instead, he was given a sort of assistant lectureship. He was so offended by this, and it was caused by...
0: At Harvard, uh, you mean. Yeah,
1: the economics, head of economics apparently was anti-Semitic and just didn't like Jews. I don't know. I mean, uh, how how to explain it?
0: Samuelson said, forget it, Samuelson I'm going to w- MIT. walked
1: across the Charles River and said, I, you know, I love being here. My family's here. I'm not going to move from here if I can avoid it. But MIT, he had a fellow at MIT who'd helped him along with odd jobs and so on in, in the holidays. And he said, uh, can I join here? And, and by the way. Transformed MIT. I mean, yeah. we, we would never have heard of MIT today had it not been for Paul Samuelson.
0: That's the point I wanted to get at, which was that back then... Harvard was the place for economics. MIT was not yet the grand MIT economics department that we think of today. He kind of built it, or he contributed, you know, mightily to having built it into what it is today. Right?
1: Yes, but he was a talented person, and they just let him do what he needed to do. Uh, just one more thing, and that is that the PhD thesis that Samuelson wrote, which didn't get him the job at Harvard, to Harvard's shame, eternal shame. That was the very the sole work which was given a citation for the reason why he won the Nobel Prize. So never mind Harvard's economics department, good enough for the Nobels, you know, 30 years
0: on. He got a little bit of revenge, I think, half a century later when he decided to dedicate his life's archives to Duke University instead of to Harvard, although he, I think, deliberately made it seem like he might consider Harvard just so he could say no to them. He showed his petticoat
1: quite (laughs) often to Harvard. He got all excited, but they also, in that classic Harvard way, assumed somehow that he would automatically give it to Harvard. Why? I'm not sure they thought that way, but that's what Harvard people sometimes do.
0: Well, because obviously the people who were at Harvard then were very different from the people who were at Harvard, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s. Maybe they weren't aware of that earlier strife between Harvard and Samuelson, but he sure remembered.
1: I think everybody remembered, actually. I mean, yeah, well, you know, Samuelson gave forth a whole tribe of Samuelsons, including Larry Summers, who's a Samuelson, and they all were around Harvard. I think that everybody knew that uh,
0: that Samuelson continued to have this kind of... Uh, yeah, grievance. Yeah, Disgrievance. A l- totally legitimate one, by the Absolutely, way. I Absolutely, mean, which I'm sure you know. he brought up at every occasion. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Uh, so he... So, but now, but, the they textbook, might, yeah, yeah, at MIT. At MIT, MIT, right? at MIT they
1: happened? said, hey, you know, we've got all these people coming to read economics. There isn't a good textbook. And there had been a good textbook, actually, by a man called Hansen, who was always called the American Keynes. But he was drummed out of the business, effectively, and accused of being a communist. Oh, really? It wasn't true. It doesn't matter whether it was true or not because it damaged Hansen. But it allowed an opportunity for, some, for the next person along to uh, deliver the goods. I mean, he wasn't asked to write a great mammoth tome. He was just asked to write a guide. Could you provide a guide for people so they understand what they're talking about or, you know, can see what the structure of economics is? And Samuelson, I don't think he'd set out to write the Bible for economics. But actually, as he got into it, I think that for him, one of the great joys of somebody who's sublimely intelligent and sublimely master of their terrain is that you can simplify things with confidence. And Samuelson was able to describe how macroeconomics worked in a way that everybody could understand without being caught out by someone saying, that's actually not quite right, is it?
0: Is that what distinguished the textbook from everything that came before, the simplicity of it, the ability to explain things better? Uh, was it that he made it more fun to learn economics? Because I, I imagine that all of these other distinguished economists who came before him had something to read in all these university courses they were taking. Uh, yeah, but wh- they, were still reading,
1: they were still reading Marshall,
0: you know. Alfred Marshall, yes. yeah, the 1800s economist. Yeah, everybody
1: think, yeah. used to say, everything is in Marshall. And Marshall was the guy who had written it all. And it's quite an interesting textbook to look at. The pre-macroeconomics economics textbook is bizarre, actually. But at the time, it seemed to serve pretty well. Yeah. Also, between the general theory, 36, and 1947, which is when Samuelson wrote his textbook, you know, half the time is wartime, and the other was post-war austerity and rebuilding. It wasn't all that much time for people to sort of gather their thoughts. So somebody at MIT was thinking along the right lines in order to ask Samuelson as the person to do it. I don't think anyone could have guessed what would happen, and that is that it became the definitive account of economics, the economics textbook for all time, revised every two years, it made Paul Samuelson a multimillionaire by his middle 20s. I know. <laughs> that sort of $150 equivalent, you know, a throw every time. He was doing pretty well, which is another reason that Rose hated him. <laughs> <laughs> Rose Friedman,
0: yeah. <laughs> he it, made all his money in the textbook. Yeah. But it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Samuelson was given a lot of credit also for the mathematization of economics, for bringing more mathematical rigor to economics, was that part of what made the textbook itself so compelling? Or was that part of a different intellectual project that Samuelson pursued throughout his life?
1: It was Keynes who was the mathematician. He never was an economist ever. And it's because of mathematics that he was able to write the general theory in order to to describe the, the fluctuating parts and bits and pieces and how the various changes when working together made some sense. And I think that for Samuelson, when he was a child prodigy, it was on in maths above all. A mathematician's brain is, I think, rather distinct from other brains in as much as it's almost measurable. And uh, undergraduate ma- students of mathematics find very often that they hit a ceiling in, during the course of the three or four year course. And clunk, that's it, they can't understand anymore. But Samuelson had this great loft. I mean, he just went as high as you like in terms of complexity of understanding mathematical things instinctively. He wrote equations like you and I would write English, you know. And it was a a marvel to behold.
0: Yeah. And during this time, the nineteen forties, Samuelson is putting together his textbook, The War Ends, you know, and Samuelson at this point is kind of racing ahead in the profession. What's happening with Milton Friedman throughout this time and sort of into the 1950s, and what kind of got him his first break and first put him into the national spotlight?
1: Yeah, he he was actually pretty humdrum. If we'd stopped the clock at, say, 1965, maybe a no, little 1960, then no one would have heard of Milton Friedman at all. There would be no newspaper index. There would be no Milton Friedman mentioned at all. And it was really, uh, he decided that, A lot of Keynes was nonsense. He'd gone to Cambridge to find out for himself who it was who was perpetuating this nonsense. They all got on very well, the Keynesians.
0: We should tell people, by the way, that Cambridge was sort of the seat of Keynesianism at the time. A lot of Keynes's acolytes and a lot of his followers later on, they called themselves the Circus, the Cambridge Circus.
1: Yeah, there there is in London, which is actually where the John le spies are based. There's a small roundabout, which is called Cambridge Circus, with a lot of Victorian buildings looking down in upon it. Uh-huh. So it was, a, it was a good joke. Yeah, for English people, they like those. So that's funny for them. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Cambridge circus, yeah, they were all still there. I mean, Keynes was dead. He died prematurely.
0: Yeah. And so Milton Friedman had decided that a lot of Keynes was wrong, and specifically that Keynes was more comfortable with the government steering the economy than Friedman was, Keynes would advocate in a downturn, in a recession, that the government was well off borrowing money to spend money on the economy, to get investment going again, to get people to spend money again, to get consumption going again. And Friedman was not comfortable with this. uh, That that was was a
1: leap of imagination he couldn't make. Yeah. To be in debt, it might come from his circumstances, his personal, his mother's circumstances. To be in debt was a shameful thing and a bad thing. And to live on debt, as if it really didn't matter that money didn't matter, was to
0: him anathema. So he disagreed with that idea for how to fight a downturn. And so, what happened in the early nineteen sixties that finally brought Milton Friedman sort of into the national prominence and, and spotlight?
1: Uh, he joined Barry Goldwater's election campaign.
0: Okay, I'm Barry Goldwater, this
1: great mountain Republican
0: who, yeah, Republican candidate for president, kind of an outsider who shocked the Republican establishment at the time in 1964 to become the Republican candidate for president, super libertarian guy, which lined up almost perfectly or lined up in a lot of ways with Milton Friedman's beliefs as well.
1: Yeah. And uh, Milton Friedman thought he was an honest guy, that he was they, – they got on with each other even though they were chalk and cheese. <laughs> but uh, it was – Goldwater wasn't a great thinker. I mean, all the great works by Goldwater are really by someone else. And the economics – uh, policy was entirely written by Milton Friedman. He said, this is what must happen.
0: Yeah. It's a good thing people didn't ask Goldwater to go into too much detail about it. He might not have known what to say. <laughs> that might be true sure of a lot of presidential yeah.
1: people, actually. I mean, you know, does, uh, Joe, does Joe Biden have an understanding of what it is to borrow $4.5 trillion of uh, debt and throw it at the economy?
0: Uh, I don't know. You I... should ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, fair enough. But uh, So, Friedman is advising Goldwater, and this is his sort of entry into you know national politics. Is this how he first got his name out there? Because he was doing some economics work at the same time, right? Yeah, but
1: this is how he moved outside of economics. Okay. And it was how the New York Times uh, gave him a very large space to explain exactly what Goldwater meant. To yeah. their great credit, by the way. I mean, they didn't believe in Goldwater at all in any respect, in any direction. But they allowed Milton Friedman to say... This is what it would be if if we were in charge.
0: Okay. And then at some point, I think in the 1960s still, Newsweek comes calling on both of them and says, we want to do alternating columns every other week where Samuelson represents one side. A side of like a mixed economy where the government has some role and the market has some role, and then on the other side would be Milton Friedman, who is very much in the camp of the free market should decide everything, and the government interfering too much is just going to cause problems. So Newsweek gets in touch with the two of these guys, and what happens?
1: Yeah, Newsweek changes hands and falls into the hands of the Graham family, uh, and where it was Phil
0: Graham and Catherine Graham, exactly, of the Washington Post. The yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And until about 10 years ago, they continued to own it. Uh, And yes, they wanted to freshen it up. And they threw out all the business columnists who said they were economists and said, we must look for some good economists. Now, in this great topsy-turvy story, of course, you'd imagine that um, Friedman would be eager to get his name in lights every other week as the the proponent of the conservative wing of economics, and that Samuelson would be the other way around. Now, Samuelson did have some doubts at the beginning until he saw the figures, until he saw how many copies Newsweek sold a week. At the time, it was a
0: hugely popular publication. Yeah, we're talking millions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And when he spotted that, he thought, well, you know, this is the guy who's got used to making a lot of money, (laughs) playing the market through the written word. And so he said, yes, include me in. And it was Milton Friedman who was just a bit sideways about it. Thinking, oh, do I really need to that? I'll run out of things to say. Impossible, by the way. And it was Rose who, you know, slapped him around a bit and said, no, "Look, this is a great opportunity. Do not turn it down."
0: You know? Also, because Friedman had been an outsider for so much of his life and in his career as an economist, you know, he was trying to overturn what by then had become the Keynesian orthodoxy. So, if you were not a Keynesian at the time. You were sort of outside the establishment. This was something that was also quite clear in your book. And so if Friedman wanted to penetrate the public consciousness and to start trying to overturn Keynesian orthodoxy, it would probably be easier to do it in something like the pages of Newsweek instead of going to economics conferences or something like that.: exactly. where exactly shut out.: it's, it's, right?
1: Yeah, it was the short route, really, to, to people's hearts, because it was, and it had to be written in language they could understand, which actually Milton was particularly good at. very straightforward prose making a very simple point, you know, 800 words.
0: Yeah, like their personalities, wow. Wow. right, were reflected in their writing. Yeah, it's all there. It's all, it was A gift for a
1: biographer, by the way, <laughs> 18
0: years worth of ping pong. You know, Did you read every single one?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. it. Took a while, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that it was worth it because a lot of this stuff has just been and gone. And, and a lot of stuff was very interesting. Then I had to go and look and, up and see what it was about and then discover that it, it wasn't pertinent to my story. But still, hey, you know, life is an education. Of course, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a lot. That's eighteen years times, uh, you know, fifty-two. I was working for Newsweek at the time. I was the
1: opinion editor of Newsweek when I started off writing this book. So, oh, when I, was that? I don't know, seven years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: that's a that's a lot signed, of signed archival this. reading. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but at least the archive was there.
0: Yeah, of and course. It, you know,
1: something I could do around the edges of my work, which was going to take the. The latest volume down, and, and see it within context too. See it with the advertisements and the all the the other things. You know, the the sixties was a wonderful time, and so uh,
0: because you had the actual print copies, yes, own oh, oh, copies, wow. yeah. Oh, that must have been fun. Yeah,
1: what yeah. a luxury! Because usually you have to go through them on some grisly ancient uh, film system. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, how big a deal was it that these two would be published in Newsweek for the better part of two decades in terms of public persuasion in terms of its impact on how people understand economics outside of the economics profession itself? I mean, give us some sort of context of how influential this could possibly yeah, be for the two Time ago.
1: and Newsweek, it's something that really doesn't exist. I mean, Time does exist. Newsweek barely exists. But they were really for people who were outside of the daily newspaper coverage, which was most of the United States. So it was for the intelligent farmer, if you like the intelligent person living in a you know, Des Moines, Iowa, where you'd get Newsweek and it would give you a sort of metropolitan and cosmopolitan view of the world that they otherwise wouldn't get. So to come in on that bandwagon, you know, to be part of that circus, I What think did you take them, away from the two of them as writers? Uh, fascinating, as, as you might guess. I mean, writing, I think, betrays an intelligence faster than anything else. You read somebody's work, you know almost everything about them very, very quickly... Nothing to do with whether they can spell or not, though that's pertinent. But just just the way that they tell their story, and Samuelson had this rather sort of very Keynesian, if you like, very patrician, uh, lofty, uh, intellectual, um, erudite. It was filled filled full of quotes from English literature, <laughs> Shakespeare, I was say like M- old French poets or Milton, something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dignified stuff. I mean, you know, it, 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 the implication was that you know. Our family's been at this for some generations, and this, I'm giving you the benefit of my wisdom. Whereas Milton was, sometimes you could find a quote which was, at best been said by someone else that you'd heard of. But for the most part, it was Milton Friedman who was quoting. And uh, he, was, he was a street fighter. He was an argumentative street fighter. He was a brawler. Uh, to his great credit, I mean, that's the way he got on in life.
0: Was one of them more fun to read than the other, in a sense?
1: Well, Samuelson was elegant to read, even if you didn't really understand what he was telling you. <laughs> Whereas Friedman was fun to read because he had, which is masterful, it's the Ronald Reagan thing. It, you can only get one point out of 800 words. And so this is the point. And you say it, you say what you're about to say, then you say it, and then you say what you've just said. That's the way he approached it. This was, as far as he was concerned, an education. He was battering at the doors of the orthodoxy. And it, uh, his character it suited him to do this. And People, in a way, quite liked him for doing that. We we all like Mavericks, don't we? We like people challenging others. They're comfortable. Don't make them that easy, you know. Don't let them
0: yeah. sleep, it, sleep all night.
1: Let's wake them up every now and then.
0: There's an interesting tension that you bring up in the book between the nuances that correctly capture an idea versus what is actually persuading to the public. And One of the lessons, intriguingly, that Milton Friedman took from Keynes is that a message has to be really simple for it to get out there. And Friedman understood, again, this is according to your book, that what Keynes had actually written in the general theory was quite complicated, hard to digest, but that the message everyone took from it, that the government should spend money when there's a recession, is simple. And he admired that about the Keynesian message.
1: Friedman was a great admirer of Keynes in many respects. I mean, not least because of his breadth of intelligence, you know. I mean, who could doubt that Keynes was an extraordinary giant of an intellect? And he, yeah, he, he loved brainy people. He loved people with big brains. And he thought that he was one himself. Why not?
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually want to talk now about the relationship that both Samuelson and Friedman had with the work of Keynes, because it is so much more nuanced than just saying that Samuelson was the continuation of Keynes and that Milton Friedman was a continuation of Hayek and that that's how the battle over the free market continued. Actually, I found it to be really interesting the ways that Samuelson departed from Keynes and the ways that Friedman actually took some inspiration from Keynes. So it it was a very kind of tangled relationship that they both had with the legacy of John Maynard Keynes. So Let's start with Samuelson and what he took from Keynes and how he kind of adapted Keynes to his own theory of what worked for an economy. And I want to start with this quote that's in your book about how Samuelson referred to himself as a cafeteria Keynesian, (laughs) not a pure Keynesian.
1: That's right. He could look at the menu and pick and choose as he (laughs) liked. (laughs) Uh, I think that Samuelson was so convinced that Keynes was right overall and he'd set himself up as the great translator of Keynes to the rest of the world, and uh the great annotator too. he filled in all the gaps that the general theory didn't have time to do that it gave him a confidence to be able to also stand apart from it now and then and say actually this the great master wasn't quite right here, and this is more right yeah, he was a good revising editor in that sense of a work which indeed is impenetrable, mostly.
0: General <laughs> the general theory you yeah, mean from yeah. Keynes.
1: It, it should be said that, by the way, that Keynes always said that the government should never do a job that, that the private sector can do. I mean, if the market can do it, all well and good, but it's we'll have to invent some jobs, many of which the market would never bother to attempt because it would be unprofitable. So Keynes was already setting himself up against himself in that sense, <laughs> saying, you know, the, the market has a place. And Samuelson took that at its word, and indeed, it said at the bottom of the, the business cycle, when people are being thrown out of jobs and when businesses are collapsing, that's when you intervene in order to get some money in the economy and get the thing back up to at least a level of footing. But then you should take your foot off the government spending gas when the economy went over the top of the, the business cycle because that would only cause trouble. I think we've spoken before about how one of the problems is that the business cycle and the electoral cycle don't match. And very few presidents and prime ministers can bear to take the foot off the gas if the election is looming and the economy is heading south. So that that's why things went terribly wrong.
0: Okay. And Milton Friedman, you know, you mentioned Keynes's tract on monetary reform, which was this work that preceded the general theory. Friedman took a lot of inspiration from that because Friedman would become a so-called like pure monetarist. He kind of invented it where basically what he said was that the way to manage the economic cycle was to automate the process. Don't let the central banks have any discretion over it because when people try to interfere with things, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to introduce distortions. Okay, certainly the federal government should have the most minimal role. But even when it comes to like managing the economic cycle in and out of a recession and that kind of thing, that all you should do is manage the amount of money in the economy. And he took some of that idea from Keynes himself also.
1: Yes. Keynes was working through various bits and pieces to do with the economy. And he'd done a lot of work in the UK treasury on the Indian currencies, which is quite an interesting notion that these were separate from the pound sterling, but they operated in cahoots with the sterling, but at the same time they were separate from. And he was trying to look at the printing of and the borrowing against uh, those currencies and whether they worked. And the basis of that was trying to work out the quantity theory of money, which just by the the beginning, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you double the amount of money in an economy, then goods are going to end up after a while, costing probably twice as much, because you've got twice as much money chasing the same amount of goods. It's the the price curve. It's very simple. The difficulty is then trying to work out how you can apply that very simple thought, the notion of the quantity theory of money, into action. Milton thought, well, if it's a matter of the more money you put into an economy, the more inflation there is. To cure inflation, the best thing to do is to you will never cure inflation, by the way he admitted. But in order to maintain there was just a small amount of inflation, a predictable amount of inflation, you don't have a federal reserve with discretion. You operate as if they were a machine. You just give them, by law, a small amount of money that they can funnel into the economy at any time.
0: Yeah, and to maintain a steady growth path, which he said should be about 3 to 5% more money in the economy each year. But- you said repeatedly in the book, he never really explained where he came up with that.
1: No, the 3 to 5%, no, he just picked some out of the air, I think. <laughs> I suppose in a way you've got to in those things because there's no one going to tell you. you know, the data's not going to tell you either. He did a lot of work on big data with Anna Schwartz, the great Anna Schwartz, which was completely turned everything on its head, including Keynes' understanding of how the Great Depression came about. Yeah. And he said that actually it was to do with... Not, as Keynes believed, there wasn't enough money and that everybody had speculated on things which made no sense in the bubble burst. And 1929 happened, and then everybody fell into disrepair. It was the fact that the federal government did not provide enough liquidity, that is, cash, to the banks to stay afloat, to stay open long enough for people to continue running their businesses so that you could just ride through the the turbulence of the late 1920s.
0: And that book, The Monetary History, that he wrote with Anna Schwartz, That actually was accepted by a lot of mainstream economists over time. And I think quite famously, Ben Bernanke once said to Milton Friedman many decades later, I think in the early 2000s, you know, it was our fault, the Federal Reserve's fault, that the Great Depression happened. But thanks to you, Milton Friedman, it'll never happen again.
1: The solution that uh, Milton discovered, of course, was that the Federal Reserve at that time should have been more Keynesian. That is, that they should have printed more money. So strangely, by disproving Keynes, he proved Keynes right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's how economics works sometimes, well, if right? Well, Keynes I mean, works like
1: this the whole right. time, you know, because yeah. he he backs every horse in the race. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Friedman has this kind of background of trying to contradict Keynes. And he comes in and he has this idea for monetarism, which is that you should just manage, you should automate the amount of money that goes into the economy every year and he tries to advocate this for this for the rest of his life. And it seems like the fatal problem every single time is that you can't manage this. There's different conceptions of money, and all of those different conceptions of money are themselves impossible to measure, especially in real time. And so this monitorism philosophy of his it is attempted in something like its intended version in the UK, which I had no idea about. There's a whole chapter about it's this. Hilarious. It's hilarious. so great. It's hilarious. But like, the chapter's great. The actual experience was kind of brutal, though, Horrible. For, for the, in the early 1980s. Tell um, us about that a little bit.
1: Well, Milton had the great advantage of persuading a number of people to actually try out his theory. The economists would say, this is all very interesting as a theory. We may or may not agree with it, but who cares? Milton said, I'll, I'll show you that it works, and he got Reagan to try it. And he got Mrs. Thatcher to try it. And he got the Chilean generals to try it. When they weren't throwing nuns out of helicopters. They were practicing monetarism.
0: But in the U.S., at least, though, he was never satisfied that there was an attempt to implement his version of monetarism. Nor, nor
1: he was in Britain. Oh, is that right? Yeah, okay. No, the, okay. The same
0: thing was true. It seemed in the, like this. in the U.K. it came closer, though, to trying his version of it and, it, and it didn't work.
1: Well, I think Mrs. Thatcher was a chemist, you know. It's very important. She, she was the first scientist prime minister. And she took theory very seriously. She read books about theory. That's interesting, because not many people do. Reagan did. But uh, but he wasn't the same sort of character as Thatcher. The, the administration wasn't the same either. In Britain, there is a sort of top-down, you'll do as you're told notion about government. And so government ministers and so on do what the prime minister tells them. Whereas in this country, well, people can go rogue. Even within the cabinet, they can go rogue. And then it's quite difficult to adjust them.
0: Yeah. I want to back up for a second because we have to put all this in the context of what was happening in the 1970s and 1980s. Because you know the, the Keynesian kind of dominance of economics started to be threatened by the idea that in the 1970s, you had both high inflation and high unemployment. And there had been this relationship between those two variables that was understood to be one of a negative correlation, where if you had very high unemployment, you would have very low inflation and vice versa. And in the 1970s, you got a lot of both. It all went wrong. So what was going on in the 1970s that led to this kind of surge in both unemployment and inflation? And then give us sort of a sense of where Samuel and Freeman were in all this. Yeah,
1: yeah. First of all, we got into, in the Western world anyway, into double-digit inflation. A lot of it was to do with things like the OPEC countries, the oil-producing countries, deciding that what they wanted to do was just to get more for their buck. I mean, you know, what they were, they were keeping everybody alive, running around on cheap gas. And what were they getting out of it? You know, not much. And so they decided to crank up, reduce the amount, really, reduce the amount of oil, ration the amount of oil, which forced the price up. And oil, as we know now, adds to everything. Every single thing is yeah, delivered that's inflation. somewhere. That's yeah. inflation. And that's what every economist thought was the cause, apart from Milton, who said, no, no, it's to do with the amount of money in the system. Money is always
0: and everywhere caused by government. That's his famous That's his famous saying. So he said, inflation is every, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Yes,
1: which is caused by a central bank putting too much money into the system. Well, even though that wasn't obviously true, it was people blamed trade unions. They blamed profiteering um, merchants, there are all sorts of attempts to stop inflation purely by legislation saying you may not raise your prices more than a certain amount, or you must post your prices and you must stick by them for six months, uh, or you may not have a wage rise. The wage rise is going to be limited. This was all tried, particularly in Western Europe, caused grief to all of the socialist governments who found themselves pitted against uh, the trade unions.
0: I want to bring something up about what happened in the late 1970s and through the mid-1980s. It seems like there was one big winner in your book, and it was neither Samuelson nor Friedman. It was Paul Volcker, because what ended up happening at the end of the 1970s when inflation was super high and Paul Volcker becomes the Fed chair, and he puts in place a system of much higher interest rates to try to slow inflation which would have the effect of slowing down the economy but at the time Paul Samuelson said I don't think this is going to work even to slow down inflation. Well, Samuelson was wrong. Okay, there was a recession but also it slowed down inflation. And then some years later in the 1980s, Volcker still the Fed chair said, "Okay, it's time to ease up now. We can finally, you know, we can finally let some money back into the economy and lower and start lowering interest rates." And Milton Friedman said, That won't work. You'll just get inflation first, and then you'll get a recession the following year. And that was wrong. So both of these guys doubted Volcker's judgment, and Volcker was proved correct in both of these big instances.
1: Volcker's a fascinating figure in many respects, not least because he was something like six foot five inches tall. A conversation between him and Milton Friedman was very interesting to watch. (laughs) Yeah. Because of the literal gap between their brains.
0: (laughs) They fought a lot, too, because Volcker wanted to put in place high interest rates as the main way to fight inflation. But there was some confusion about whether or not he would actually be able to stick to his guns early on in his term. People said, well, there's no way that he's going to keep interest rates high because then there'll be a recession. So what he said was, that's fine. We'll just start publishing the amount of money in the economy because now it shows that like Milton Friedman, we're paying attention to the quantity of money that's out there. And then later, he said he might even target the amount of money out there, which he would later abandon. And it was interesting because according to your book and according to Alan Blinder, the economist, the economist you cite on this, that was just cover for what Volcker really wanted to do, which was to keep interest rates very high. Friedman was kind of livid that his monetarist project was kind of um, perverted like this, right? He was pissed at Volcker. Right? He hated it. But that's what Volcker did. And Volcker sort of, believed it seemed those- to work.
1: Volker believed that there was some virtue in the quantity theory of money. He thought that it made some sort of sense. But the way to approach, therefore, a problem like inflation, hyperinflation, or stagflation, wasn't to do what Milton said, which was to sort of fix the tap so they only dribbled a little bit of money into the system. That wasn't the way to do it. What you really need to do is effectively what is what he did, which is to reboot the economy. You break the economy, then you start it off from a new normal, And then you gradually let it grow slowly by curtailing those interest rates, keep grip on it.
0: We've talked a lot about the differing approaches to managing the economic cycle. I want to close by talking about the differing views of Samuelson and Friedman in terms of just the government's presence in everyday life. You know, Friedman was quite a radical here. I mean, Any excuse you could have to cut taxes, he wanted you to take it because he thought that it meant that inevitably it would mean that the government would have to shrink because it wouldn't be bringing in as much revenue. And so therefore, it would have to start spending less money. He thought that taxes themselves were an affront to personal freedoms. And he, in general, was driven by this notion of personal liberty More so even, and this was interesting in your book, more so even than the concept of how to manage an economy so that it could be the most efficient and maximize economic growth. His driving force was actually this idea of personal freedom.
1: Yes, it was. And to that extent, I think Milton Friedman has left, there may not be a Friedmanite school of economics, but there's certainly a Friedmanite school of libertarians who now are, I guess, the vast majority of the Republican Party, or at least voters. You think so? I think the Republican Party has become
0: immensely More libertarian, libertarian. really? Well. I got the opposite sort of impression from the Trump years, to be honest with you. Well, Trump is an anomaly.
1: We (laughs) we have to (laughs) assume he's an anomaly. He was the
0: Republican president, though, right? I mean, it seems like he's increasingly taking over over the party, right? Yeah, but
1: a lot of his support, natural support, came from the Tea Party movement. And the Tea Party movement was absolutely to do with, what's the government done for me? Why am I paying for it? Why am I paying such high taxes when... I don't get any benefit from it.
0: I got the sense that the Tea Party used that as its rhetoric, but didn't actually believe that, that like the Tea Party was more driven by cultural animosities and things like that. I think that's something that's quite heavily debated now, but I certainly didn't get the sense from someone like Trump, who was opposed to, I think, traditional Republican notions of free trade, certainly. Yes. He was fine with trying to browbeat companies. You know, he passed a big tax cut because the Republicans in Congress wanted to do it, right? Um, And then, of course, he's going to brag about it because it's his thing or whatever. But, like, I didn't get the sense that Trump really cares that much about the libertarian project.
1: Well, I think just if you think of the history of the post-war Republican Party, though, and let's leave Trump to one side because he is sui generis. And that is that gradually the party of Nelson Rockefeller and big government and efficient government has been— set to one side, in favor of individual liberties across the whole range of things, from drug taking, which is Milton Friedman wanted no laws on drugs, including no laws on the testing of drugs or the use of drugs which were being tested. You know, all of this is the government should have no hand in any of this stuff. The registry of doctors he wasn't interested in, you know, surgeons. no, 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 thank you. Why do you need a certificate? Certainly, whenever I have my hair cut in New York, I always look at the certificates there in front of me thinking, why would you need a certificate to become a hairdresser in New York? I and mean, that's just government interference, which it is. But it's a means of government manipulating things. And that maybe has gone far too far without, without the benefits that you get, actually, of socialism. It's a sort of socialism without the, the good bits, I think.
0: So Friedman certainly uh, left behind, I think, a lot of um, a lot of political followers, if not like an economic school what about Samuelson? What, what, what do you see as his legacy in terms of, like, what the government's involvement should be in the economy?
1: In any other country, uh, if, he, well, if he's a Western European, he would be a social democrat, someone who
0: believed, Big in, welfare in, state.
1: believed in the government. Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and it's not only good for the nation, but it's actually efficient. Mm-hmm. If you th- think of single-payer health care in Britain, uh, 1947 was the foundation of the National Health Service. Uh, the Brits pay half as much per capita for absolutely identical medicine. And when people say, ah, yeah, but you have rationing, don't you, in Britain? Well, so you do here, but it's called price. And it means that there are millions, tens of millions of people who are not, well, they don't pay for their healthcare and they have to go cap in hand to the ER in order to get their child's cough fixed, which is humiliating. So altogether, it's it's not a good trade-off. Do you
0: think the world is moving in Samuelson's direction more than it is in Friedman's direction? Let me take that back. The U.S., moving more in Samuelson's direction now rather than in in Friedman's direction when you look at, you know, say the experience of the last five to 10 years?
1: Mm, That's not not an easy question to answer. I can't see any evidence for the fact that the Democratic Party, of course, it has got a progressive wing and uh, Bernie called himself a socialist, but I can't see social democracy on the horizon
0: genuinely. I just mean moving in that direction. So if you like look at Obamacare, you know, if you uh, look at some of the ideas that Joe Biden has put forth in his current uh, oh, but, yeah, proposed package, which yeah, hasn't been passed yet, and, you know, and it's sort of, as of this taping, never been it's still discussed. Up, in the, up in the air, right? One of the um, horrors of having Trump is that none of Biden's
1: policies were discussed, and they're not being criticized now. There, there is an agenda that Biden's people are pushing through as fast as they can before they get stopped by the midterms, I guess. And it is a social democratic agenda, undoubtedly.
0: It is that that would seem like a win for the Samuelson uh, for yeah. the Samuelson yeah. side of this debate.
1: Yeah, but there's there's a pendulum swing always. There will, will be it's hard to believe now, but there will be life after Trump and the Republican Party will not return to the the cozy parallel um, universe that uh, Biden holds. It will be more radical in its desire to get rid of government from
0: things. Here's a possible point of optimism, and I'm curious to know if after this big project of researching Samuelson-Friedman, you share it. You know, the, the idea that the role of the market versus the role of the government should be fixed in a certain point, that there's a right place for it, has always kind of struck me as a little bit strange, you know. I think it's okay for this to be a constant tension and a constant debate. In fact, I have a feeling that it's healthy for a democracy to have this constant back and forth with sometimes one side wins and gets a little bit more government involvement in the economy or in society. And you know that the win is not necessarily permanent. It's temporary. So, you know, your side wins. Then a little bit later, if it goes too far, the other side pushing in favor of allowing more market forces Mm. to dominate, then that side wins and that it's this constant back and forth. It seems healthy to me that this debate, which has now been going on for so long, if you trace it back to, you know, the Keynes versus Hayek debates going all the way back to, you know, the 1920s, literally almost a century old, it seems like it's okay for the pendulum to swing back and forth and that that might actually be a healthy thing. I think you're right. See, it's based on a, False
1: premise, the battle of of the free market, because there's no such thing as the free market. It has never existed. In history, it has never existed. You cannot ever get back to a state of Eden where somehow the government really didn't exist or just had the lightest of touches on the tiller, just looked after the sense of the realm. It ain't going to happen. So all in all, it's a false premise. The battle of the free market can't exist because the free market is not available to exist. You know, we'll, we'll never reach it.
0: Last question. What was your favorite part of doing this mammoth project of reading 18 years (laughs) of Newsweek articles and researching the backgrounds of these two extraordinary individuals?
1: I loved the elegance of Paul Samuelson. It was always a pleasure to be with him, just as I wrote a book about Franklin Roosevelt. I'll tell you, come martini time, five o'clock in the afternoon, you know, I was in, in Franklin's world. having a, <laughs> and a Churchill, too, a very similar sort of character. It's nice to write about people like that because that's the sort of person I am and that's the sort of person I'd like to mix with. On the other hand, I also like the, the joy, the freedom of thought that you get from somebody like Milton. There's a wonderful Marx Brothers song, which is I'm Against It. Whatever it is, I'm Against It. And that's, he was a contrarian. And contribute they're the grit in the oyster. They contribute so much just by being a pain in the ass. <laughs> and I think that M- M- Milton, although, you know, 15 years after his death, no one can remember who he is. And there's no great tribe of Friedmanites. But he did change the country noticeably. And there are more people like him. We, sh- we should be so lucky if they're as civilized as he was, because uh, he, li- he liked, he was a joiner of clubs. He might like, join in order to sto- storm out now and then. But uh, I spent some time at the Hoover Institution, for instance, where he ended up his post-Chicago life. And the joy with which he brought to argue- arguing with people who be- entirely believed in what he thought, but he fell out with each one of them in turn <laughs> as he battled with them over, you know, minutiae of thought, that that I enjoyed too. So actually two wonderful characters.
0: Nicholas Wafschott, thank you so much.
1: Great joy, Karif. Thank you very much.
0: And that's our show for today. You can find a link to Samuelson Friedman, the book, in the show notes for today's episode. And I especially recommend checking out the book if you want to learn more about the technical contributions to economics from both Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman. We just didn't have time to get into it in our chat, but it's all fascinating stuff. And we'll also share a link to my previous interview with Nicholas about the battle between Keynes and Hayek, which I did back when I was hosting FT Alpha Chat some years ago. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keane. It's a collaboration that someday will hopefully be so successful that Nicholas will write another book about it and simply call it Keen Garcia. Special thanks for this episode to Adrian Lilly, our wonderful sound engineer, and to Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio for the sweet-sounding theme music. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend about it. That really is the best way to spread the word about the podcast, which will ensure that we'll get to keep making it. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bazaaraudio.com. We really love hearing from our listeners, by the way. And even though we can't always respond to all the emails we get, we do read all of them. And I assure you, we really, really appreciate them. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.